0: Hey guys, welcome to another episode of the Yes People Podcast. I'm your host Savvy Rex and today I'm humbled to have Jim here with me. Jim is a producer, presenter, a podcast host and he is also a community safety professional. Jim, thank you so much for taking your time to come on the Yes People Podcast. How are you?
1: Oh, I'm brilliant. Thank you so much for having me on. It's just a real honour. I've listened to some of your podcasts and, you know, that you've been doing recently and i uh, Absolutely love it. So thank you so much. It's an honor to be on here.
0: No, I'm I'm really humbled to have you because when you sent me over the information for me to do research on and I'm sure we're going to speak about this on the podcast. Yeah. You have so much experience in so many different things. Um that experience has also wanted you to be help communities so that they can do better within themselves and become safer, but before we go on to all of that, I just want to ask my first question, which I love asking everybody, is could you tell me a little bit about you, Jim, as a person and your background of growing up and how that influenced you to be the person that you are today?
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, I was born uh, in um, the late 60s and um, my my mother actually had me quite young. She was only 17 when she wow. had me and obviously in the late 60s it was a a period of time as people born in that sort of era and people that were living around that era, um, you know, having a child out of wedlock um, and also at that age was kind of a big deal. And, you know, it would bring shame on a family and that kind of stuff. So I was uh, I was born in Stoke-on-Trent um, in 1969 and then I was very, very quickly taken away from my, my natural mother and put into a, a children's sort of care home for around about three months, and then I was adopted by a family um, from the West Midlands, and uh, taken down to uh, a place called uh, Wensbury in the West Midlands, or I think it was Staffordshire actually back then, until they changed all the borders in the sort of the, the early seventies. And um, I, had a, I, had a, I had a really good childhood. To be honest with you, really, really good childhood. Um, my, my, I had an older sister who was uh, two two and a half years older than me. Um, Great community spirit where we lived in Wensbury. It was, you know, everybody knew each other. Everybody was in and out of each other's houses. You could keep your door unlocked at night. You know, it's just a brilliant, brilliant community. And uh, then we moved. We moved to uh, Birmingham uh, in around about 1977. Uh, and my mum and dad took up um, a, a greengrocer's shop um, in Birmingham. And what what I sort of became aware of at quite a young age, um, that was I was immensely quick. I was a I was a very, very fast um individual, um, even from sort of the age of sort of five, six. And noticed that, you know, I had this talent. So I I got involved in athletics at quite an, an early age. There was a local club in Birmingham called Birchford Harriers that some people may know of. Very big club within the UK and it just became apparent that i was immensely quick and um went to various trials and you know just won you know hands down um won the birmingham trials um and the birmingham championships and then just went on to be, you know, um, a, a great British junior international sprinter. Um, broke British British age records. There's a, Some of you listeners may remember a guy called Adi Maffey. Adi was an amazing sprinter. I looked up to him so big. He was born in 66, so he was a bit bit older than me. But Adi got to the Olympic final as a 17-year-old in, in LA in 1984. So I then started to kind of start training with people of sort of had his calibre, um, people like Derek Redmond, a guy called Phil Brown, who used to um, always do the last leg of the relay in the 4x4. Four four. And these guys, they all went on to sort of win Olympic medals and World Championship medals. And then cruelly, when I was 15, um, I, I did that year I'd broke the British record, I'd won English schools championships, I'd got really high hopes to, you know, make the Olympics as as a teenager, really, um, and beyond. But unfortunately, I got injured. Um, I popped a hamstring and it just kept happening. And the hamstring kept tearing and tearing. I went round the country speaking to various specialists, you know, and, and trying to sort of get it sorted. Nobody really could get to the bottom of it and find out what the problem was. Um so I, I eventually, you know, in my early twenties, I made the, the the you know the bad decision for me really to sort of like, knock it on the head. And um and by that time I'd sort of got married and and um I got married quite young at twenty two. And then we got a son by twenty-three. So wow. it kind of took over my life really. I think I think I may have been able to get back to a reasonable standard. But I think my goal was always to get to the Olympics and I always had a, a strong belief that I could win an Olympic medal of some colour, whether that be in the individual um, you know, event or whether it be in a relay. I, I, I definitely think we could have got, I could have got a, a medal in the relay. Um, but also I believe that, you know, I could possibly have got a medal in one of the individual, you know, 200, 400. Um, so, you know, it's, it's a big regret. But I think it put me it put me in good stead um for you know my future really, you know, in, and how I sort of have developed as an individual moving on through my life.
0: That's a really cool story, actually there, Jim. Yeah. Wow. See?
1: Yeah, it 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 was uh it was a great time, you know, it was a great time and I'm immensely proud of what I achieved you know and as I say breaking that record you know that the, the age record that I broke um when I was 15 for 200 meters um I did 21.5 for the 200 and 10.62 wow. for the 100 as a 15 year old but what was what was immensely proud was that um Addy Mafi had done 21.6 as a 15 year old and I'd always looked up to Addy and sort of said mm. this guy is just awesome you know I just he was just my idol and um good that we've actually managed to link up since since my career ended really and sort of we've exchanged emails and what have you and uh, I've kept in touch with him um from time to time but it was immensely proud that I actually broke his record you know and that that's something that will always be with me you know that. <laughs> somebody i really looked up to you know i was able to um you know be potentially on par with him or beyond really um so yeah it was it was a, it was a great time um some regrets still you know some regrets that i didn't make it but still still can't take away those memories
0: i think sometimes in life when something happens it's, it's telling you unfortunately it's not it's not that you know it's a regret that something has happened in your life but also, it's taking you on a different journey to do something else, because if yeah. you if you didn't if that didn't happen to you, Jim, how do you know that you would be the person who you are today and helping the people who you are helping now? You know? Yeah,
1: I think you're right, and you see this in a lot of professional footballers. I think you know they. They they all they know is football. And as I said to you earlier in the conversation, you know, I was a seven year old, six, seven year old, you know, I was fast. Um, it was all I knew really. And even at school, you know, even though I probably could have done better at school, everything for me was geared towards athletics. Yeah. So it was like uh, I'm not really bothered, you know, I'm gonna be a super athlete. And of course you get your friends, your friends kind of see the progress that you're making as well. And they're like, Yeah, you don't need to bother with school. You don't need to bother <laughs> with like, you know, being academically saying, You're gonna be a superstar. And 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 that was, in some ways, I suppose, you know, you listen to your own sort of press, really, which is always a bad thing, I think. But... You know, all, all my friends, you know, I was getting quite a lot of press coverage at the time. Believe it or not as well, you'll, you'll find this one really, really funny. But in 1986, I was actually in Vogue magazine as well, hey. which was crazy. Um, they contacted my coach in, I think it was late 1985, and said, you know, we've heard about this kid, you know, he's really quick and we want to cover him. And I'm like, what, Vogue magazine? And I'd not really, I'd not really sort of, I knew about <laughs> it, but I didn't realise the magnitude. And, uh, I think it was the January copy of 1986. I was actually in Vogue magazine and I was, it was dead funny cause I was like this spotty 15 year old teenager. <laughs> and I think when the photographer turned up, he sort of realized that, you know, oh dear, what am I going to do with this kid? This kid. <laughs> so when they actually produced the picture, what they'd done is there's a guy called David Buckland. He was quite, you may have heard of him. I'm not sure. Hey, He's a yeah, vote, vote yeah. David Buckland. He was the guy that took the photo. And, um, when it when it was produced, it was kind of like a, a blurred version. So he kind of caught me at speed. So what I had to do was kind of kind of keep doing all these runs in my vest and shorts on a really bitterly cold day. And uh, he's obviously thought, well, I can't really put this spotty kid on on Vogue. Oh, so, so he's, he's like, he's, he's got you. that image that sort of. It showed me, but it kind of blurred all my face, so it kind of gave the impression of speed, which I thought was quite clever. But I think there was there was a, there was a reason behind why he did it, <laughs> you know, which was good. Which was oh, good.
0: Oh, he, he was smart. So basically, he was using his creativity, but at the yeah. same time, he had a motive behind it.
1: Yeah, I, I think get, so. I think I get so. It. But the, the, the funny thing about it is, is that um, my daughter, who is now twenty five, she she in her sort of teens and early twenties, she did some quite a lot of modelling, and uh, and did uh, London Fashion Week a few times, and actually did get into Vogue. So there's a bit of an in an in joke, sort of family joke that I actually got into Vogue as well. You know, which, which is quite <laughs> unrealistic. It's just crazy, isn't it? You know, I've still actually got the copy, which is. I was going to um, ask you. First, do you still when have I first it? the kids, you know, they couldn't believe. (laughs) so yeah it's good good memories you know good memories you know and, and and i i do look back at that time as with fond memories but i totally agree with you that coming back to the point you know that footballers athletes you know they have great careers but then sometimes it stops and then what happens and i think there's a massive um you know evidence to suggest that some sports stars you know they retire and then they they become sort of um a, a little bit lost, you know, and you, you hear stories of, you know, getting drink, you know, getting on into drink and, um, not having obviously the amount of income that they had before. And if they don't break into say management or coaching or punditry, where do they go from there? That's true. So I think you're absolutely right that although I have regrets and, you know, I would love to have been an, an Olympic athlete. Actually, I think when I look at my life now, it did me a favor. I think.
0: Yeah. I see you've had great achievements more than regrets to me because you tell me just your story so far of what you've said to me. I see it more as an achievement more than anything else.
1: Yeah, it was. And what happened was, was that, as I said to you, I got married quite young. Mm -hmm. We had Sam at 23. And I, I at the time, was working for uh, an insurance underwriters and I really hated the job. It was something that I just did as a matter of income. I wasn't passionate about it. And I, I'm the sort of person that, if if I if I do something, I've got to be passionate about it. If I don't enjoy it, I just won't give it my best. And and that's why I always try and you know seek out opportunities that really kind of float my boat. Really. So what happened was was that I went back to college. It was a big risk, you know. And um, my wife had a similar job, paying a similar income. So she, what we decided was that I would look after Sam. Uh, my oldest and then my wife would go back to work which you know caused a few issues in the family really you know people looked at me as if to say how you know how can you do that you're the man of the family you go you know you go back to you should be working you should be earning money what actually what I did was that even though I was I was studying I um, I went out and I did cleaning jobs um, in the evenings and I also became uh, an active member within the student union of the college that I went back to um, and actually managed to get a paid job with the student union. So on top of my studies, I was, um, I was cleaning, you know, cleaning places. I think I had three cleaning jobs at the time. Uh, And one of the things that was always resonated with me back then was that how people um, are very, very short minded and very kind of quick to judge and, so you know, I've got absolutely every admiration, admiration for every person that does, you know, any type of job. But it's amazing how people treat you when you're doing a job like that. Yeah. Uh, and and you know they don't know about you. They don't know the background. They don't yeah. know what you're trying to strive for. Uh, and and in fact, you know, one day, um, I was doing a cleaning job, um, and as we'll come to you know later on in the in the in the in the in the conversation within a week I was a police officer yeah. so you know people judge you and go oh well, you were cleaner. you clean toilets for a living but actually if they did if they dug down into the surface and actually got to know me a little bit better they'd realize that I had aspirations to be a police officer and, and and go on to a you know a good career in the police service so I think the I think what that taught me very very early on was to be kind and to respect people and everybody's got something to offer you know and you don't know that person's background you know they may be cleaning, but they may have retired uh, or they're cleaning and they're doing a fantastic job, you yeah. know, and I always make a point of, you know, any organisation that I work in, everybody that works for that organisation gets my time and, and they and they get my, um, my recognition because everybody plays a part. It doesn't matter what small part you play, everybody plays a part in the success of that organisation.
0: That's true. I totally agree with you there. Mm. Like so, and that leads me actually on to my next question. What was it that made you say you want to, I know you were studying. So was you studying to be in the police force first?
1: You know what? No, it was really weird. I'd, I'd come out of athletics, obviously I'd done a couple of sort of jobs that I didn't really enjoy. And I think the goal really was to try and stay within sport. So at the time, the kind of the niche role that was difficult to get into was sports development. So one of the things that I wanted to get into was, you know, particularly athletics, you know, so I could go in, you know, and, you know, at grassroots level and and help people develop athletics. Um, But the the roles were so difficult to break into. So the actual course that I did was like um, a leisure course. And it was like a BTEC um national diploma, which is quite an equivalent to like three A levels. So I did that. For, it was a two-year course. And then what happened was was that I had this tutor at college. He was like a really, really good guy. Um and I'll always, I'll always be grateful to him. And he he'd actually served eight years in the police service up in Manchester. And we just got talking one day, and I wasn't sure what I really wanted to do. I was I was realistic that sports development jobs were few and far between, particularly where I lived, and I didn't really have the desire to move out of the area um, where I was living, you know, for family reasons, obviously. And uh, we just got talking, and he was telling me about the police, and he said, you know, even though I left early, he said the police has changed a lot since, um, you know, I was in, in the sort of 70s and that. He said, you should give it a go. And, uh, again, we had a few more conversations. And then I just decided, I think it was the April, that I would give it a go and made the application and went through the processes um, and then eventually managed to get in. It was quite a a tense time for me and my wife because by that time then, in 1995, our second child was due to be born any at any time. I think I got the nod um, for the police service on the... I can't remember when it was now. I think it was in October 1995. But ironically, I think I got the letter to say, yes, you've, you're in and you've got the job and you've passed the medical. Um, and my wife actually left for maternity leave on the Friday. Wow. So we were in this really difficult position that I'd left college, I hadn't got a job, um, and if I hadn't been successful getting that police um, role, um, then... I really don't know what I would have done really. I probably would have got to carry on cleaning and just look around for the next opportunity that probably I wouldn't have been really that passionate about. So it all just fell into place and it was good for me because it, I was able to sort of take, you know, real, real encouragement by the fact that I'd taken a risk yeah. and my wife had taken a risk and we'd made that risk two years before and it had paid off, and it was good to be able to go back to family and say, you know what, it was worth the risk. And although you guys doubted us at that time and looked down on us a little bit because, you know, like I'd go to parties and I'd go to sort of um, events and people say, oh, you know what people do. The first thing people say to you is, oh, what do you do? Oh, I'm a student. And, And it was like, what? You know, you're 24 or whatever I was about then, 24, 25. You're a student. And yeah, yeah, I'm 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 trying to better myself, and they just look down on you, and I'll be like, okay, fair enough. And then all of a sudden, like again, six months later, I'm a police officer. So you'll go to a similar event, and they'll go, oh, what do you do? You go, oh, I'm a police officer. Totally different attitude, you know. Oh, you're a police officer. Oh, brilliant, you know. And they'd like, and that just shows sometimes how fickle people can be, but. I think the message I want to get across to your listeners is if you, if you want to do something, you know, just do it. You know, we've all been through a difficult time in the last 12 months.
0: definitely. And
1: you know what, if you've got a desire and the, and you can find a way to do it financially, then do it, you know, don't sit back and, and, and in 20 years time think, oh, I should have done that and just do it, you know, and I'm just, I live by that now. And I, even though, even now as a 51 year old man, you know, if an opportunity comes along that I want to do, um, just do it and take the risk, and, and 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 it will pay off. And if it doesn't, you learn by it and you move on. That's true. And you become a better person.
0: That's true. I totally agree with you there. I f- mm. I wish that more people took risks in their life because I find that when I when I speak to a lot of people, they always turn around and tell me. I ask them, "Do you love your job?" And they turn around and say, "No." I say, "Why?" and they say it's soul destroying so I say why don't you go for the opportunity of doing what you love oh because money is more important I I'm like but is, isn't your soul more important than the money yes. I do understand we're all in different situations I do understand that but well,
1: that, yeah and, and that happened to me in the police Um, I I I went on and joined the police in, in the latter part of 1995 and, and when I joined the police you know it, it was fairly rich with um, with finances, you know, there was no real sort of austerity back then. Yeah. So, um, and there was a lot of officers. You know, there was hundred thousand plus officers across the country. It was an amazing place to be. And I did twenty years. Got to the rank of sergeant. Special, specialized in really kind of community, um, sort of um, development. I suppose where you go into a community and you'd sort of like help them and change them and take out criminals that were causing the problems. Yeah. But but I got to a point after 20 years that, and, and this was kind of un, un, unwritten really. It was like, you never leave the police. Once you join, you never leave. You never do anything else. But actually after 20 years, we, you know, austerity kicked in. Something really quite um, harrowing happened to me in 2014 where we'd gone to arrest somebody for an offence it was only a young lad he was 17 but he was causing a lot of problems in the neighborhood um he'd been he'd been arrested several times and he needed to be arrested again for a breach of his bowel conditions and we went to the address um and unfortunately he got loose and ran away from us and um as he got to the end of the path i was chasing him up the path Mm -hmm. and he got hit by a car in front of me and uh, was thrown several metres across the road, landed on his head. um, And family, obviously, were not very happy with us, although we'd done nothing wrong, weren't allowed to administer first aid. And um, we, you know, we were in a very difficult position. I then had the job, you know, although I was absolutely stressed to the eyeballs, managing the scene, managing all the, uh, the initial kind of expectations of me as the first sergeant on the scene. So, you know, you've got to take that responsibility very seriously and make sure that the scene is preserved. And obviously your main job is to try and preserve life, but you're not allowed to do that because the family are there saying you can't do that. You know, don't touch him. Um, So that was, you know, a really harrowing experience. And then me and my colleagues then, from being sort of treated as witnesses, very quickly became treated as as kind of suspects, as if we'd done something wrong. Which, which clearly we hadn't. Um, it was just unfortunate that the kid had got loose and then made the decision to, to run right. straight across the road rather than turning right or left. Had he turned right or left, you know, he, he would have been fine. Um, but that that's, that's life. And um, it, it kind of caused quite a lot of PTSD for me, you know, post-traumatic you know, distress. Um, I was interviewed under caution, just left a bit of a bad taste really in my mouth. And then after 20, just over 20 years, I just made the decision that it wasn't for me anymore. You know, I'd made some great arrests. I'd had some good things in my career. I'm immensely proud of what I achieved. Yeah. Um, I think I was a good leader. You know, I led people well and, and, and people, you know, liked my leadership and they responded well to my leadership. And, and I genuinely did make communities better. You know, communities where people had said to me, you're never going to change that community. Yeah. You are never, ever going to change that community for the better. And I went in, I did it, you know, and <clears throat> that's how I sort of work now, you know, is that if people say to me, I can't do something, then for, for me, and again, the message to your your audience is, yeah. just get out there and give it a go. What's the worst that can happen? Yeah. You know, you learn from it. Um, so in 2016, after a couple of years kind of struggling with, ptsd and not really enjoying the job anymore because of austerity and the reductions in numbers again i made the bold decision to leave and like people were like what you're leaving the police service after 20 years what about your pension well i had been quite lucky actually because i would not been in the pension for the first 10 years because of financial reasons because it is a big chunk of your salary and with my wife not working initially um you know it was a big a big ask um so i wasn't in the pension for the first 10 years so it kind of gave me a bit of a way out in 2016 so um I'm, again i you know i took a bold decision you know people looking at me going are you crazy what are you doing but i made that decision and i went and worked for a housing association um yeah. that i'd been working with as a police officer um, went on to work as a community safety manager for two and a half years there, and then um, and then went on to work for a local authority, which I'm still doing to this day up in the north, the, the North Midlands area, um, as their anti-social behaviour manager. And you know what? Again, it's absolutely paid off. And again, the message across, you know, take a risk, guys. You know, I've done it. Anybody can do it. Um, yeah, money's great. I took a massive pay cut when I first left the police, um, but it was worth it. And now I'm probably, you know, having I've got a better level of income than I was in the police. See? So you know, you, you've got to take a step backwards sometimes to get a step forward. Um, and 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 I would say this to anybody. And I think, as I said, you know, in the early in the conversation, surely COVID has taught us all now to say, you know, we get one shot at life. Do it, you know, take that risk because you're only here once and you will regret it as an older person if you don't take those risks now.
0: That's true. That is so true. How do you feel about, I know you are passionate, just by hearing everything you've been saying so far, you are really passionate about communities. I am. But how is it that any area, any community can help to make their community even safer by helping the police? But also the community coming together to say, "Okay, this is what we need to do. How do we do it? What would your advice be to any community listening to this right now?"
1: I think, I think, one of the big issues with the police, and you know, you may have experienced this in in London where you are, yeah. is that it's all there's a big there's a big issue with trust. Trust, and I think when when you go into an area as a as a as a sergeant, um, as a a neighbourhood sergeant, as I was. You've got to win that trust first. You can't just go in there and just, you know, think that you're going to change everything um, overnight. It doesn't happen like that. And as a community sergeant, what I did was that I would go in there and I would get to know people and I would get to know who the main people were that were causing the, the you know, y- what you tend to find in a lot of communities is that there's a minority group that caused the majority of the problems. Gotcha. And I was, you know, very good at sort of being able to sort of, take my time, get to know the community, the key people within that community. But then you then, bit by bit, you start to look at enforcement. Now, some people would say enforcement is not always the answer. But in my experience, it's not the ultimate answer. But I think if you are going to change communities, you do have to have an element of enforcement. And I'll give you an example. I was given um, a very challenging area in 2010 and uh, I, t- I touched on it earlier in the conversation when I when I was given that area uh, it was a place called War- uh, Coal Pool in Walsall it was once the um, the worst area in the whole of the UK back in the early 90s effectively classed as lawless and one of the things I hate about any community is when people say you know it's a no-go area it's not policeable I just don't think that that is the right way to look at things. And when I um, had my first handover um, session with the sergeants that had been actually working in that area, they effectively were laughing at me and they were saying, you know, you're not going to come in here and do any better than we have got, you know, Jim. You're not. You're just not going to change it. It, it. There's families within really this area that are, you know, stronghold of the area. They've run the area for many years. You're not going to break it. And, and again, you know, that to me is like red rag to a ball really, because I just feel that as not just me as an individual, but as a collective group of people, if you can get people on your side and you can effectively manage and lead the team and get community members on side, then you can achieve more. And that's exactly what happened. And, And the other thing I think you've got to do as well is you've got to seize your opportunities and, um, What I felt that some police officers had previously done with this main family that were causing problems was, although I don't think they were being neglectful in their duty, I'm not saying that for one minute, but I think they gave those individuals far too much respect and didn't seize opportunities that came their way from time to time. So in 2011, I'd been policing the area for probably about 12 months, 12, 13 months. And this family... um, committed quite a serious racist attack. What had happened was that this this black guy had moved over the road um, into uh, a property with his girlfriend. And he had no respect for them at all, really, because he didn't know what this family were about. He was new to the area. He hadn't lived in the area before. So he didn't know what they were about. They were obviously starting to be racially abusive towards him over a period of a couple of weeks. And 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 fair play to him, he stood up to them, and he sort of said, "I'm not having this, you know. I'm not having you sort of racially abuse me," and and stood up to them, and there was a bit of a there was a bit of an altercation one Friday evening, and then the family that were attacked that were against him in early hours of a Saturday morning. They all got together and went in and smashed all these windows in with spades and various weapons, golf clubs, all that kind of stuff. And again, fair play to this guy. He comes out and he starts to sort of like defend himself.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, luckily for me, we actually had this family under surveillance and we captured the whole incident on CCTV. Yeah. So we were able to kind of come in, um, review the CCTV and lock them all up for a serious, uh, not only a racial crime, but also a a very serious matter of violent disorder. And I think we locked up six of them all together, Um, charged them, put them before the courts. Um, But then what I thought was that, although I got faith in the criminal justice system, I was really concerned that um, we, we may not get the result that we wanted at court. So, One of the things that I work in now and and, and that's very effective when you're tackling some criminality is the civil tools and powers um, from, um, you know, the antisocial behaviour sort of acts. Um, And we we went to the local housing association that I then went on to work for and said, look, you know, why don't we look at civil injunctions against these individuals, even though we've got a criminal matter ongoing, I think that we need preventative measures as well to stop these individuals coming back into that area because with the criminal justice system, you know, there's always a, there's always a concern that um, they may apply to have their bail conditions sort of, um, sort of relaxed. Um, a couple of them were on remand and then got released on bail. Um, so they were back in that community. So, What we did was we we all worked really quickly as a partnership, and this is the key to it, you know, is working very closely as a partnership. And what we did was we um, we applied to the civil courts on the Friday, the following week after this incident happened, and we got six injunctions against these individuals. And what those injunctions did was it banned them from their home addresses for for two years. Um, we had to go back to court and, and, and sort of do a further hearing, but none of them contested it. And what happened was, was that it transformed that community overnight, really, because it showed the community that we were prepared to tackle them. And because they couldn't go back to their home addresses for you know, over two years, what actually happened was, is that it diluted the group and they all kind of went off to their own new sort of addresses. And it, and it took away that stronghold but coming back to your point, what what it did was it gave that community confidence then in the police. It gave the community confidence in my team. And what we found was then was that they started to give us more information and tell us more about what was going on. So what, what I always say is that what big mistake that a lot of police make is that they'll go into an area, they'll clean it up, and then when it goes quiet, that's the time then where they'll move on to the next project. But what I've always said is that when that quiet period kicks in, that's a really important time for me. And that's a time when you've got to kind of stay in that area, keep working with the community, keep talking to them. They'll tell you more. And then what happened was because we did that, it didn't go back to how it was because you've always got new people coming through that want to take over the mantle of the people before. So we were then able to kind of gather intelligence, gather more information, and then we took out more injunctions on people, evicted some people that didn't deserve to be in that area, and we kept that pressure on um, for a number of years, and right up to the point where I left, really, Um, to the point where when I handed my area over to the new sergeants, I don't think we had any, we weren't, at that point, we weren't investigating any live crimes in that area at that time. Um, and we'd reduced antisocial behaviour by up to 70% because we, we cared about what we were doing. We, we we embraced the local community down there. They got our confidence and we were able to do so much work with them because they would then come forward and help us. So it's not only I'm 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 making that really simplistic there, you know, very simplistic. It's a lot, lot more complex than that. But I think the key to it is really is gaining the confidence of that community. But then I think one of the things that I'm really, really good at is um you've got to be sustainable, you know, in what you do. You've got to be you can't just be sort of, you know, a one trick, a one trick pony. You've got to keep putting your money where your mouth is, really. You know, particularly in that role as a sergeant, um, as, of, of a really kind of um, deprived community, you've got to, you've got to be consistent, and you've got to consistently get results.
0: That's the key um, word, yeah.
1: You know, and that, that's the key to it, really. It really is key because the community then can grow confident from what you're seeing, and then at that point, then I think you can then start to do more within the community, bring in third sector organisations bring in statutory sort of um, elements of it too and build that community again really from the confidence that they've got from the enforcement side of things and that things can change. It gives people hope, I think.
0: I think hope is one of the, the, the biggest things that we need right now because with yeah. everything that's going on and everyone having to stay at home, um, we don't have – but it has shown a lot – people have shown a lot more compassion, I would say. I think so. I think so too so I think that's a really good thing and I hope this year we double that amount of compassion for what's been going on in the world because it will help us join together as a force to make the world an even better place which kind of leads me on to my next question for you is what would you change in the world right now to make the world a better place if you could have that power to?
1: I mean, it's a big, it's a big thing, you know. It's, it, it, like we've just said, really. There's a lot. There's a big, complex issue going on at the moment in the world. Yeah. Um, but I think, I think people need to be kinder to each other. I think one of the things, one of the things that I, um, I, you touched on earlier about my podcast, you know, that's been launched very, very shortly, the Community Safety Podcast. I think mean, one of the things that I've said is that you know people need to sort of start leaving their egos at, at, at the door when we yes. try and do work together i think there's far too many people that work in silo and i think that um egos get in the way and that's when problems can can start to um eradicate what people are trying to achieve so i think i think what what covid's taught me is you know although I think I was doing it before, but probably I'm doing it more now is I'm reaching out to a lot more people. Um, you know, I, I've helped, I'm really proud I've, I've actually helped a couple of people this year that were very much on the brink of taking their own lives. Um, the one person I know, the one person I didn't know, but they reached out to me and I've worked really closely with both of these individuals over the last, um, sort of 12 months. And, um, they're mo- they're both in a great place now, in a much better place, um, particularly the one person, you know, who, who I didn't know. And um, so I think it's really about being kinder to people, really. I think if we're kind and we're open our, our, our hearts and our eyes to opportunity, but that collaborative opportunity, then we can do more, you know. And I think this is why I've been saying the message I've been trying to get across from a podcast, really, mm-hmm. is that what I'm trying to say is that, you know, communities can work to get together better if we if we put down those barriers and we. Um, you know, it's not about one person winning. You know, and being yes, someone's got to lead a project. I get that, but that person's still got to have compassion um, for the group that they're working with. You know, what what I say to my team all the time is, that as a leader of any team, and I've le- I've led quite a few teams, successful teams, is that. I think as a leader, you've got to have compassion and real genuine care for That's those true. individuals. And and if you do that, and again, if you're consistent and you can consistently show that group of individuals that you genuinely do care about, A, a, a them as people, you treat them as human beings, you treat them as adults, um, but, but, you know, you are consistently performing on their behalf and on the community's behalf, then that team will perform for you um, to levels that you would never ever believe. And also that team, um, that team will, will 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 make you look good as an individual anyway. So I, I, I sort of try and kick that ego into touch every time really because it doesn't matter to me. You know, what, what matters first and foremost is that those people that I'm working for me are looked after, they're cared for, and that we do the job that we're paid to do and beyond. Um, and and it's always put me in good stead. You know, I've always successfully run teams that go to the end of the world for that community that they're serving, um, and, and and that that can that can only bode well for that particular community. So I think in answer to your question is is more collaboration, leave the egos at the door, um, and I think we've got half a chance. You know, be more caring because I do think there's elements of COVID that probably have made people a little bit more selfish. Um, Although I think the majority have kind of took stock. um, I think in some individuals, it probably can make them worse. So I think moving forward into 2021, with all the community work that I want to do and all the things I want to achieve in 2021 and beyond, it's very much going to be about telling people, you know, be kind, leave leave that ego where it is, and, and let's achieve great things together. And, you know, we'll all get kudos from it. We'll all we'll all we'll all feel proud of that achievement, um, and and I think that's the key to it, really. You know, I really do. I, again, I'm being very simplistic there, but but I do think that the it's, it's a way it's a way forward. Um, let's stop competing so much. Let's stop being so jealous of people. Um, jealousy is yeah. a really 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 bad emotion, and and I'm not saying that I I haven't been a jealous person in the past. I have, you know, I I've been through periods of my life where I've been jealous of people. But I can honestly say now that I'm not, you know, if people do well, uh, and I think we're, we're a little bit like that in this country, you know, I think we're very quick to build people up and knock them down. Whereas now I'm very proud of people's achievements. And yeah. if people are doing great work, I'm very much one of the first people to commend them and to and praise them and say to them, you know what? Brilliant, brilliant. Just keep it up, you know, and I want to collaborate with those people. I, I want to, I want to jump on what they're doing because they're going to teach me more. And then that makes me a better community leader and a better a better person to do the jobs that I'm trying to do.
0: See, I like that. I wish more people were like you, Jim. I definitely do. I think if more Thank people you. were like you, I think the world would definitely be in a better place and go in a better direction. Yeah. What, let's talk. I totally more. Agree. <laughs> let's talk more about your podcast, uh, the community yeah. safety podcast. Cause what made you come up with this idea?
1: I've always had a bit of a, a bit of a passion for broadcasting. Um, as a young boy, um, you know, I liked the concept of radio. I liked it. I listened to a lot of radio when I was when I was a, a young boy growing up. So it was something that was always in the back of my mind. And then when I was a community police officer, me and a colleague were again given the responsibility for policing quite a re- well policing a really hardcore area. Um, a place called Smedic in in um, uh, in the West Midlands, uh, in particular an area called Cape Hill. And during the early 2000s, we got an awful lot of um, asylum seekers coming into that particular location. It was only a small area, but I think at one point we had sort of something like 30 different nationalities. Right. You know, we had people from... You know, lots of African countries. We had lots of people from Iraq, from Iran, um, lots of different countries, you know, and they were all thrown together very, very quickly under the scheme that was working back then. Um, So it it presented some challenges. Um, Obviously, one of our main sort of um, drivers was to engage with young people to try and find out what they wanted to do. Um, We had some ideas, but we thought it was really important that we actually went out to those young people and said, you know what, we've got some ideas, but what do you want to do? What really sort of floats your boat? So we canvassed a number of young people in the area, and a lot of them were saying, oh, we'd love to do music, and we'd love to do radio and broadcasting. It was something we're really passionate about. And this came back time and time again. So it was really weird because we had no idea really how to do it, and we started with a blank piece of paper. (laughs) And we started like scribbling out a few ideas. And again, it comes back to what I said earlier, really. we collaborated with some really good people. We hadn't got a clue. So we we got in touch with some people and said, you know, will you help us? And it's it's quite interesting, actually. As a police officer, you do get a lot more help from people when you ask them. You know, there's a lot of good people out there. But I think having that kind of that police background and yeah. with us being active police officers at the time within that community, people were quite happy to help us. So we... um we, we pulled together a, a group of people and set up an organization um, and then just tried to um, raise money um, through funding. And we were successful. Um, we got money um, from various sources. And then in around about, I think it was about 2002, we, um, we actually were able to secure our, our own premises um, a mate of mine, he'd been using some premises, um, his lease was up and he said, look, you know, this would be a fantastic location for you guys to sort of set up. Uh, it was called Smethwick Sound. And um, so we set it up. <clears throat> we had uh, two studios, two recording studios, uh, well, two broadcasting studios. We had a mixing area. And um, as, oh, I think at w- one year, I think it was 2003, we actually turned over something like £300,000. Um, wow. th- all that money was kind of going back into the project. You know, none of it was kind of, you know, being sort of used. It was very much, a, you know, a non-for-profit organisation. And uh, we were training probably about 100 kids a week in radio production, uh, in other sort of bits and pieces, you know, mixing, that kind of stuff. But what was really kind of interesting was that, again, it broke down community barriers. It broke down nationalities all of a sudden you know kids from you know african countries kids from iraq they were working with kids from smedic who had grown up there and where probably at times there were kind of tensions what we found was that you know when you became a group of individuals that were responsible for producing the product program broadcasting that program it, it just broke down those barriers you know and it was just beautiful to see and and also it helped i think with people's english and numeracy because they were having to sort of like you know set these shows up and they were having to think about how they would structure it and it was just an amazing sort of process and then in the may of 2003 we were able to get a restricted um, broadcasting license and the kids went live for 12 months uh, sorry 12 sorry 12 months they went live for a week um and, and and were able to broadcast to their community on an FM channel uh, frequency, which was absolutely brilliant, and and brought them a lot of kudos. Oh. So, broadcasting's always been a little bit of a um, a kind of a, a thing I've always wanted to do. Um, and then, obviously, moving into sort of the policing side of things, community safety, working with communities, and seeing how communities can change. That idea has been with me for a while really, but I never really knew how I could how I could sort of further it. and then probably probably about sort of August time, I started to I set up my own YouTube channel and my specialist area is antisocial behavior. I've been doing it for many years so yeah. I thought to myself, you know what I'm gonna do a few tips just for people in the profession you know, from my own experiences, you know, a massive disclaimer at the start of it, you know, to say, look, this is just my own personal views and, um, but, but, you know, give it a listen, you know, and see what you think. And I did a series of, a series of videos and they went down really, really well. i got some great feedback. And then I just thought to myself, I've really enjoyed this, you know, and there's nothing better than when you enjoy doing something. And then around September time, I just thought, why don't I do a podcast? for community safety it's not been done before it's it's really niche but it it involves so many different elements you know like drugs like um child exploitation honor-based violence domestic abuse you know antisocial behavior i just thought you know what a great way to get some guests on there and we can explore their profession what they've done in their lives But also, more importantly, how we can explore how we can change communities for the better. But not only just have a a podcast, but let's actually use some of that content and actually change communities for the better. You know, in the in the short, medium, and long term. So that's really where it came from. And as I say, I started the project in September, and it's just it's just massively grown. And although we haven't, we've only broadcast a promo so far. I've just been absolutely overwhelmed, not only by the response, but by the number of guests that have agreed to come on, you know, some really high-profile guests that have just said, yeah, I'll come on and I'll be a guest and I'm really happy to share my experience and my views. Um, so I've just been blown away, really, absolutely blown away. But I, I really do believe that it will help change communities for the better. And as I said to you earlier in the conversation before we, we turned the record on. Yeah. I really do believe that we will change lives um, by doing this. And if we save one or two lives, you know, like I've said, we're covering things like domestic abuse, we're covering things like underbased violence. You know, if we save a couple of lives by what we're doing, then that's just got to be a great thing.
0: It sounds like it to me, most definitely. One of the mm-hmm. things I did want to talk to you about, actually, um, previously I was talking to my friends about it, just in a general conversation about drugs and young children being exploited in, in drugs. But could you... Just touch on that for us to tell us a little bit more how that is affecting communities.
1: Yeah, I mean, obviously the drug trade is a massive, massive thing within you know the UK and the world. And I do honestly believe that there has to be an element of reform around how we tackle the drugs problem. That's a big issue. It's a wide issue. And it's not one that's going to get sorted out very, very quickly. But what we're seeing over the last sort of you know few years is that, drug drug dealers particularly the higher level drug dealers have, 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 have realized a couple of things really number one that young people are there to carry the burden mm-hmm. and obviously there's big risks with drug dealing and take you know tackling drugs uh, and, and dealing drugs so there's a big there's a big issue there um, but obviously young people are there to carry the can for them so it takes away an element of risk. And I think what I've also they've started to realise is is that there's there's um other areas within you know the country where they can infiltrate their their sort of operations um again by using these young individuals. So what we're starting to see is when I mean, they call it county lines where young people are being sort of recruited, groomed by these gangs. You know, not only by the big dealers, but obviously they've got people that are working for them that will go out and actively recruit some of these kids, um, and then they will they will they will sort of you know bring them into their family. Now we've got to understand that a lot of these kids, you know, some of them been excluded from school, they've got issues at home. I think one of the things I want to get across today is that I never write off these young people ever. Because there's always, if you dig into the background of each of these young people, in a lot of cases, I'm not saying all, but in a lot of cases, there's a history and there's a reason why they're vulnerable and there's a reason why they end up sort of gravitating towards these kind of people. But then what we're seeing is that then these young people are out there taking all the risk and we're seeing now, you know, young people getting sort of involved in a lot of violence you know, some some of these young people are getting murdered. You, know, you only have to look at some of the issues down in London over the last, you know, couple of years. The amount of murders involving young people, mm-hmm. and across the rest of the UK, and it's a growing problem, and it's one that needs to be eradicated. Um, so I'm, you know, again, this is one of the uh, the, the, the issues that we're going to be covering on the podcast. Um, I've got actually a guest coming on next week. Um, that I'm recording the show next week that's going to go live on the 22nd of Jam a lady by the name of Dr. Grace Robinson and Grace has been doing a lot of research um, into this very subject matter and again we want to use some of this research to turn it into reality really in terms of how we can tackle the problem and, and again save lives I'm not saying we're going to eradicate the problem very very quickly it's a massive complex issue but we certainly are going to go out and try and work with a number of people to see if we can at least reduce some of these murders and these um you know these people um you know getting involved and and i think covid has played a big part in this as well in recent months in that you know kids have been out of school they they haven't you know and this isn't just you know kids that are getting into trouble at school and have been excluded because i think that's a that's a big target market for these individuals that are targeting these kids and this is why I'm a big believer of keeping young people in education as as best as we can and not be so quick to exclude them no matter what they're causing and the issues they're causing um, And also I think it's left other other young people vulnerable during the COVID period as well and open to um you know exploitation. So it's a massive problem, and I hate to see young people you know getting hurt or worse. Uh, and we need to we need to we need to get some solutions to the problem fairly quickly um you know what we're seeing is some of these young people you know they're like say for example uh from the West midlands you know some of these young people are turning up in sort of places miles and miles and miles away um from where they live uh, and and infiltrating sort of you know areas where you know there's a market and 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 you know they can make money for those bigger dealers um and you know they feel I think initially these young people, they feel loved and they feel as if these people are on their side, but ultimately they're just being used as mules and they're, 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 being, they're, they're, they're taking a lot of the risk. Um, and, and, it, and it's got to stop. But, but again, if you look at the wider problem, there's a market there that's been, that's being driven, you know, not, not just drug addicts as such, you know, we have to look at the cocaine market for an example. If you look at the cocaine market, it's being fueled by working people, in some, in some cases, people with very good jobs. Um, and you have to say that, you know, that is fueling the drugs market, the drugs demand, the drugs, you know, the supply is there because the demand is there. So I think, you know, some people need to take a long, hard look and say, you know, when these young people are getting killed, they are, they are in, indirectly assisting the, the, the drugs markets because they desire that product. So, um, it's a massive problem, and again, it's not going to get resolved anytime quickly, but I want to start making inroads, and again, Grace is going to come on um as, as my first guest, and we will be exploring um you know the research that she's done and how we can how we can sort of at least start to look towards eradicating some of these issues and saving lives ultimately.
0: I love that. It's definitely something that I will definitely be listening to. So listeners, definitely yeah. look out for that. I'll let you yeah, guys know you. exactly when it's on and you know we can. Yeah, that one will definitely be
1: there. released on the twenty second of um, January at seven PM. We're gonna be releasing three episodes all at once. So um Dr Grace is gonna be the first one. So um you know, I really would urge you, your listeners to uh take a listen to that one as well. I think it'll be it'll be a, a, an interesting conversation.
0: See. What's the best advice you have ever received Jim that has helped you in your throughout your life I would say what's the best advice that you can say someone has given you that has helped you as a person
1: i think I think the best advice I can I've ever been given um, and I try and give that advice now is to is to be yourself and 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 not and I I'm I'm sort of saying this as now as a fifty odd year old man, and I'm not saying I've always adhered to this, but I think I have now for a number of years, and it's working. Is, is to not worry too much about what people think of you, True. and I think as I get older, I think I get more and more comfortable with that concept. But I think it comes onto what I said earlier in the conversation. Really, is that if you want to take your life forward you've got to take risk, calculated risk. You know, I'm not saying that people take ridiculous risk. It's got to be calculated. It's got to be well thought out. But if there's one message I can give across your listeners today is like, don't worry too much about what people think of you. It's what you do and what you achieve is what matters. And yes, people are important. Our family's views are important. Our friends' views are important. But ultimately, you are in charge of your own destiny. And if you can take that good advice on board, but be influenced by you as a person rather than what everyone else is saying. And if you think back to the point that I made earlier on in the conversation when I left my job and went to college, that, you know, there were a lot of people sort of saying to me, bad move, mate, bad move, don't do it, you're going to regret it. Great advice, guys. Thank you. Take it on board. I'll think about it. Thought about it for a couple of days. No, this is the way I'm going to better my life. And for me, my wife and my family. And that is what I did. I took on board what they were saying. But ultimately, I made that decision. And I paid, you know, I would then ultimately pay the cost or I would reap the benefits. It was a calculated risk. And it has paid off millions for me. So if there's one piece of advice I can give you listeners is go with what you think. Don't be too influenced by, you know, what people think of you. Um, they'll get over it, you know, and when you make a success of what you're doing, That's true. as i found in life, you know, people, they're quick, quick enough to come back and pat you on the back and forget about the conversation they had with you a couple of years before, you know, because... Yeah, people sometimes are not too great at admitting that they were wrong yeah. um <laughs> so just do it go for it we're here once and 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 life goes quick you know i only felt like i'm 51 now it only, it only feels like yesterday i was a 15 year old doing that athletics it goes quick so make the most of it embrace every opportunity and i hope that covid taught us that more so than ever
0: yeah most definitely need that so what would you do differently if nobody was judging you?
1: Do you know what I think I probably would have taken more risk sooner? Um and 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 like in my career in the police, I think there were times when I probably had the ability to go higher in the ranks, okay. although I was happy doing the sergeant role, and it takes a massive and massive amount of effort um to get to the sergeant rank. People don't realise just how hard it is to transition from a constable to a sergeant. And the hoops that you have to jump through to do that, Um, so it's a massive achievement. But I just felt that probably through my police career, I probably did think too much about what people thought of me, and was too concerned about what people thought. So again, you know, I think that's the advice I give is that it it it, it doesn't matter what people think. Um, As like I say, as long as you um, you're acting morally and you're doing the right things for yourself yeah. you know when you're not risking other people and, and trading over other people for what you want to achieve then you can go for it and, and I think that's what the advice that I would you know I would have given my younger self was that take more risk but more calculated risk
0: see that's a good answer right there it's definitely a good answer so I've only got one more for you which is simply where can people find you? Just like I was lucky to I was actually referred to you, so I was lucky to be yeah, able to interview you. And I'm glad you did. Thank <laughs> you. I've really
1: enjoyed this. Um I, I'm on LinkedIn, so you can get me Jim Nixon on LinkedIn. And um I've got you know quite a lot of information on there, and so you can read all about me. Um I'm also on Twitter, so I'm on uh, you'll find me Jim Nixon ASB, capitals ASB. So I'm on Twitter. I've also got a website that's linked to the Community Safety Podcast. So that's www.thecommunitysafetypodcast.co.uk. Again, there's a load of information about not only me, but also the podcast. And um, there's also a promo broadcast on there as well that you can have a listen to, which will give you um, a bit more information about what the podcast is all about, what we're trying to achieve. And also it gives you some information about the three guests, the first three guests that we're getting on um so i'd really urge you to give that a listen and um and they're the main am yeah i'm also on facebook as well so you can find there is actually a, a community safety podcast um, facebook site as well please subscribe to that welcome i think we've got about 300 guests on there at the moment but I, I, I really want to grow that over the next um over the next sort of few months so um so please um go on there as well and have a, have a look at that so, uh, yeah, I'm on quite a lot of platforms and uh, would welcome um, any any support. Um, also, what I would say to your listeners as well is that I'm very keen to help people. I get a lot of requests from people. You know, sometimes it's specific around um, antisocial behaviour, community safety. But as I said earlier in the conversation, you know, I've helped a few people this year around, you know, their mental health Um I'm 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 going to be quite open and honest that I've had I've had my own um battles with uh, mental health over the last um few years. Um I've come through it. I'm a lot stronger for it. Um again message to your audience, don't don't let people um you know bring you down around mental health. You know be honest, be open about it. Um, and more importantly, ask for help from whoever you think can help you. Um, I reached out to a number of people when I was suffering with mental health issues. Um, and I'm glad I did. And they helped me. And I, they've made me the person I am today, really, by you know reaching out. So, again, I'm here to help. Um, I'm a good listener. Um, I won't judge. I don't judge. Um, but, you know, always reach out if you're in need and, and I'm always here for any of you, if if you do need that and you can reach me by lots of different ways.
0: That's most probably one of the most humblest ways or, or guests. You're most probably one of the most humblest guests that I've had who want people to come and talk to you. Thank you so much for just yeah, doing absolutely. that. Jim. If
1: I can save one life or two lives and you know what, I'm here and uh, I will continue to do it, you know, because, you People were there for me when I was struggling. You know, people were there. And I think sometimes it's very easy to hide the fact that you've suffered from mental health. No way. You know, I I I, I shout it from the rooftops now because if I can sort of show people, and I've kind of purposely left it to the end of the conversation with you mm. today because I didn't want to sort of mention it early on. Um, I think what I wanted to get across to people is how much I've grown and the journey that I've come on. But I just wanted to throw that in at the end to give people, again, that are suffering from mental health a little bit of hope that, A, there are people out there that do care and do want to help them, um, but also what you can achieve if you embrace it and if you you let people in and you have an open mind. And again, like I said, take calculated risks. You know, you can achieve loads. Never see it as a barrier. There are lots of people out there to help you.
0: Another thing that I wanted to say also is that people always have this preconception of what a police officer is and does and, and looks like and how their attitude is. You haven't showed me anything that has made me judge I don't judge anyways because I don't I don't see the point of judgment that's just my heart there's no point of judgment because we're all humans we all have a life we're all on a different path but you've showed me a different people always have this or a police officer will be like this or they're going to talk to you in a certain way you haven't showed me any of that Jim
1: yeah I, do you know what there's good and bad in every profession I'm not perfect by any stretch you know and I would never ever profess to be but ultimately it comes down to what i said to you earlier you know it comes down to trust and if you're going to do a good job you know you've got to get the trust of people i i'm very respectful to and, and i always was every criminal that i ever dealt with and actually can can i tell you just one story very yeah, quickly before we sure. sign off this 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 proves it to you really um a few years back i was um i'd arrested somebody And I treated this guy with a lot of respect, you know, like I did with all the prisoners that are locked up, you know, brought them into custody, treated them as a human being, didn't judge. Ultimately, look, mate, you know, you're going to get arrested. I've got to bring you into custody. We'll look after you. We'll sort you out and, you know, we'll go through the process. Absolutely fine. So about three weeks later, this, uh, it's a really hot summer's day. And I've been after this one particular individual and um i was on my own but i knew the community quite well so i took again took a bit of a calculated risk and i think this proves that it doesn't always pay off but i thought right i'm gonna lock this guy up because he's been missing he's been wanted for a while so uh sort of went up to him and again you know did it in a, a professional way went to arrest him and uh, very very quickly i realized that i was surrounded by a number of his colleagues a number of his mates and mm. um, some of them had got weapons some of them hadn't and i was very very um, quickly in a situation where i knew that i was going to get a beating and i was uh, going to come off this worse like any police officer i immediately asked for backup but i knew that backup was going to be a couple of three minutes away but what was really quite interesting was was that the man that I'd arrested a couple of weeks before was walking by and he came into the group just as I'm about to get this absolute uh, beating. And he basically told them that I was a good guy and that to leave me alone. And he kind of bought me time. He bought me valuable, valuable seconds. And by the time he'd kind of finished kind of representing me and defending me, my colleagues had arrived and we were able to then make arrests and calm the situation down. But again, I think the valuable lesson for me there and to your listeners is that, you know, if you treat people with respect and you treat people with the respect they deserve, no matter where they come from, then it will be paid back to you in abundance. And he he saved me, you know, from a serious, serious beating that day. I don't know what would have happened if he hadn't have intervened. So again, I think my lasting message is again, treat people with respect, treat people with kindness because it will pay you back. And you know what? If some people that you treat with kindness and treat people with respect, don't pay it back. Don't get too beaten up on it because it will happen. And unfortunately that is the human race and people are like that. But but there are a lot of good people out there. And I just try and th- sort of get the message across that there are a lot of good people in the world. And if we all work together a little bit more effectively, then we can change things for the better. But we've got to open our minds and our hearts out to that. And if we if we if we continue to have this kind of insular, me, me, me attitude in life, then we're never going to achieve anything. So, you know, let's all come together and let's all work together as one you know and we can achieve great things
0: i love that thank you so much for saying that jim and thank you so much for coming on the Yes people podcast and sharing your story with the audience i know oh, I've, been appreciate really, it.
1: I've really enjoyed it and thank you you know love the way you interview and uh, very very great you know and uh, it's a uh, calm way to listen to it you know um, and i hope your listeners get something from it
0: definitely guys thank you so much for listening to the us people podcast and please remember you can subscribe to spotify itunes google play and amazon music now and any other platform that you prefer listening to, please also follow us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. And you can also donate to the US People podcast by simply going to the Savio Rocks website or just typing in paypal.forward forward slash US People podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Stay happy, stay positive, And as always, please continue to be kind to one another. back.
1: that thank you yeah brilliant yeah I love doing these I've got to say I just really really love it but I I don't know what it was but the way you questioned me today was I was able to get more out than I wanted to get out you know sometimes you you don't always get out what you want to say but today I felt the way you interviewed me I was able to kind of give what I really wanted to give